I am delighted and blessed to be able to be back with you again. I love um, getting to come here. Uh, Usually about once a year, I get to visit you in the evening. And so it's really a joy to be able to dig into God's Word with you. And I've been praying that as a result of our time together in this passage, that every woman here would worship the exalted Son of God more than we ever have before. That's really the point of what we're studying today. So you can open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Now, this is not a passage that is preached on very often unless a teacher or a pastor is going through the whole book of Hebrews. And I pray that you're going to come to see the benefit of this passage today as we study it together and see why God included it in Scripture and the author included it in the book of Hebrews. We already know that all Scripture is profitable and that it's intended to make the believer complete and equipped for every good work that God has for us. So we know that's true of this passage as well as all of the other ones we'll encounter in Hebrews this year. And we want to know and love and serve our God better through the study of Hebrews. And today we'll be reminded again of the preeminence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have already discussed in our previous weeks that the overarching theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better or Jesus is superior. Last time we met, we heard how beautifully the author of Hebrews presented Jesus as the superior prophet, priest, and king in the first three verses of this book. And so we pick up today in Hebrews 1-4 as the author begins to lay a strong case for the fact that Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, maybe some of you are like I was. Prior to being assigned this passage to study, I had subconsciously tended to gloss over this section of Scripture. Um, When I was reading through Hebrews, I, I don't know a lot of people that tend to exalt angels too highly, and so it was pretty easy to read verse 4 that Jesus is superior to the angels and affirm that and just go on to the next section without a lot of extra thought other than reading over it. But that did not do justice to the inspired word of Scripture that we have here or the truth that these verses are going to proclaim to us about the glories of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we will see reason after reason today that we should worship the exalted Son of God. And let's pray, and then we're going to dig into God's word this evening. Oh God, there are such precious truths about our Lord in these verses, and I pray that you would use our time today to reveal your glory even more to the ladies that are here to listen and learn from your word. You know that I am inadequate, but you are always sufficient, and it's your Holy Spirit at work in us that we need to bring about change. So we pray that you would help us to know and love you more because of our time in your word, and we pray for any woman that's here that might not have come to you for salvation, and we beg that you would show her the truth of who you are through your word that you would show her the glory of your perfect son and that you would bring her to repentance and faith even this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we come to our text today, let's keep in mind the group of Jewish believers that first heard this message were dealing with persecution. Pete Sammons mentioned this previously. They had significant persecution for their faith and many were tempted to return to the safety net of Judaism in the hopes of gaining some relief from their suffering. Hebrews 10 mentions some of the trials these believers had dealt with. If you started in verse 32, Hebrews 10 says, But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and afflictions, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. 
For you also showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted with joy the seizure of your possessions, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. But put yourself in the place of those first century Jews facing ostracism and persecution and the plundering of their property, and perhaps wondering if soon their very lives would be at stake. They could get relief if only they would stop affirming that Jesus was God, maybe put him on the same level as the angels. What would you be willing to lose for the sake of your faith? If it meant losing your house or your job or the people that you love, would you stand firm in your faith? Or would you be tempted to maybe fall back and give ground and compromise a little to avoid losing the things and people that you care about? We have been blessed in our country to have more religious freedom than many people throughout the history of the world, but there are certainly ways that we see some of that diminishing in our own nation too. What will you do when your faith costs you something? We know that 2 Timothy 3.12 says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, so we would be wise to pray that God will help us to cling to his good sovereignty and stand firm and faithful in whatever comes our way. As we see what truths the author pointed, to these, pointed out to these suffering believers, we will begin with the first main point of our outline. And if you have your lesson from last week, it's printed on there. Number one is worship the exalted superior son. Worship the exalted superior son who is better than the angels. You can look down at our text in Hebrews 1. And our first verse for today, verse 4, actually picks up in the middle of a sentence. Uh, Those that know a lot more about Greek than I do have told us that the first four verses of this book are actually one long sentence in the Greek. Some of our English translations break it up into shorter sentences. But I'm going to read from the Legacy Standard Bible today, which does include it all as one sentence. So we're going to pick back up at very first verse. We're going to start at verse 1 and read down through verse 4 right now. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. God, having spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power, who, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Verse 4 here introduces that major theme in Hebrews, Jesus is better. It's the first of many times we see that word, or in some translations it might say he's superior. The author is going to show his readers and us that they must worship the exalted superior son and that he is infinitely better than the angels. The Jewish people rightly viewed angels as a higher level of creation than man, but Jesus became a man, and so they might be tempted to view him as inferior to the angels. Now for us, I hope that we're already all convinced of Jesus' superiority over the angels, but there's still a lot to be learned from our passage to exalt our worship of the superior son. As we continue in chapter 1 today, the author now begins to show Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and God himself, as better than everyone and everything. He begins with demonstrating clearly from the Old Testament, the scripture of those Jewish believers, that Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, why does he start with angels? 
He's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. It's a really common line of reasoning in Jewish thought. But to make his point, the lesser thing must be very impressive in order to show the greatness of what it's compared to. So angels must be magnificent if God, through the author of Hebrews, is going to demonstrate by comparison that Jesus is superior and thus worthy of all worship. There wouldn't be much of a point if the angels were not extraordinary themselves. I mean, if you wanted to convince me how amazing a new men's basketball player is, you're probably not going to rave that he is better than the best kid on your eight-year-old nephew's team. I mean, I would agree with you, but I wouldn't be very impressed with the new guy. But if instead you demonstrated to me that his early statistics are even better than, say, Michael Jordan at that age, I'm going to have a lot higher appreciation for the new player. So similarly, when the author of Hebrews wants to demonstrate the superiority of Christ, he doesn't start with something mediocre. He starts by comparing him to the highest level of God's creation. And that's exactly what angels are the highest of God's creation, even higher than humans. In the next chapter, Hebrews 2.9 quotes from Psalm 8 and tells us that during Jesus' time on earth, he was made for a little while lower than the angels. This was in his humanity, and I know we'll talk more about this next week as we cover more of Hebrews 2. While this also shows that humans are less lofty than angels in the created order, it doesn't denigrate humanity at all. We are set apart because we were created in God's image. We have souls that can be redeemed, much like how the value of a painting is set based on what someone is willing to pay to acquire it. Our worth is also demonstrated by the price that God was willing to pay for us, to redeem us. 1 Peter 1 says that for believers, that price was paid not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with something worth infinitely more, the precious blood of Christ. Well, let's talk about what we know about angels from the Bible, since there's been a lot of misinformation about them throughout pretty much all of history. A lot of people, even Christians, have a wrong view of angels. For example, angels are not just exalted humans, and people never become angels when they die. They are a completely different being that God created. They're certainly not the chubby, childlike creatures that you see in famous works of art or on some Valentine cards. The biblical description of angels doesn't resemble anything like what's found in a lot of Christian bookstores or on social media posts. They aren't cutesy. You may recall that in Matthew 28, just after Jesus' resurrection, an angel from the Lord rolled back the heavy stone from his tomb. Those experienced, hardened Roman soldiers that Pilate had sent to guard the tomb quaked in fear of just one angel and passed out in terror. Angels are glorious and powerful and intimidating, but they are never to be worshipped or adored. In Revelation 19, verse 10, John admits to being rebuked for attempting to worship an angel. John says, Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow slave with you and your brothers who have the witness of Jesus. Worship God. The angels were all created by God at one time before humans were created. We know about a third of them followed Satan in his rebellion against God, which took place after the events in Genesis 1 and 2, and before the serpent came into the garden in Genesis 3. But the other two-thirds of the angels remained forever faithful to God and are sometimes referred to as holy ones or hosts or several other names in Scripture. Revelation 5.11 lets us know there's an innumerably large number of them, myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. Thousands. 
The word for angel generally means messenger or ambassador. Most of us are familiar with Luke 2, which we probably hear every Christmas, where an angel announces the birth of the Savior to the shepherds. It says, And then suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. They are spirit beings, and although they have some kind of form, they're not flesh and bone like we humans are. They're usually unseen by us, although the Bible does give us a couple dozen times that humans interacted with angels in Scripture. This is not common. When they take human form, they appear as men. 2 Peter 2.11 says that angels are greater in strength and power than people. They worship and serve the Lord, and they deliver messages from God. And as we see at the end of Hebrews 1 this week, God also has tasked them with ministering to believers. They are worthy of respect as the highest of God's created being, but never to be worshipped. Since there's a lot of misinformation about them, we would do well to stick only to what the Scripture actually says about angels. I'm going to give you a helpful statement, I thought, um, from the systematic theology book, Biblical Doctrine, that you can get here. That's that really big, thick, white book that has a systematic theology in it. To summarize, angels are stronger than humans, but not omnipotent like God. Angels are greater than humans in knowledge, but not omniscient like God. Angels are swifter and more mobile than humans, but not omnipresent like God. Well, when we study a portion of Scripture, it's always helpful to learn what we can about the audience that first read it. The first century Jews had a very high view of angels. Some of their beliefs came from what the Scripture revealed, like the truth that angels were involved with the giving of the law to Moses at Sinai. But as in so many other areas, the rabbis had added human ideas about angels and attributed things things to them that were not scriptural. Even some worshipped angels, which they obviously should have known better than to do. Well, the writer of Hebrews knows his audience, and he knows that they believe angels are second only to God himself. It is crucial that they understand that Jesus is God and that he is superior to every created being, including the angelic beings. So the author then, as good preachers do, is going to quote scripture that his Jewish audience would be familiar with, and he's going to use it to demonstrate conclusively that since Jesus is superior to the angels, God's highest creation, he is superior to everyone and everything, and he's deserving of worship, that of the Jews in the first century and that of all of us today. As we go through these verses in chapter 1 and their Old Testament quotations, the author shows his readers that they should worship the exalted superior son who is better than the angels. And we are also going to see five reasons you should worship the exalted son. Five reasons that you should worship the exalted son. If you look down at verse 4, the author tells us that the son of God he's been describing in those first few verses has become so much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now just to clarify, verses 3 and 4 speak of Jesus having accomplished cleansing for sins, being seated at the right hand of the Father, and having become so much superior to or better than the angels. Now, of course, Jesus has always been greater than the angels. But that verse we mentioned earlier, Hebrews 2.9, talked about how he was made for a little while lower than the angels. In other words, when Jesus came to earth as a human, he set aside the privileges and the honor of his eternal deity, and although he was still God, he was temporarily made lower than the angels in his humanity. 
and then exalted again in his resurrection. Well, here we're going to see the first reason that you should worship the exalted son, and that is worship him because he is the son of God. This comes from verse 5. Worship him because he is the son of God. We'll spend some extra time on this one because it's so crucial to understand the author's assertions in this chapter and ultimately in the entire book of Hebrews. We read that Hebrews 1.4 says that he has become so much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Remember that name was more significant to the Hebrews than simply what you were called. It had a deeper significance and said something about who you were as a person. What is this name? You can look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. As I mentioned earlier, angel means messenger. They are servants, but Jesus Christ is the unique son of the father. As our pastor John MacArthur said on this uh, passage a few years ago, He's better than angels because of his name. He's a son. He bears the nature of God. Angels are created beings. He's the eternal, uncreated son. Now, the angels were sometimes collectively as a whole group called sons of God by virtue of the fact that they're God's creation. But no angel was ever singled out and called the son of God. That privileged name belongs to Christ alone. The author is speaking to Jews, all of whom respect God and the Old Testament scriptures, and so that's where he points them, to the very word of God in their scriptures. Here in verse 5, he quotes first from Psalm 2, verse 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Portions from this psalm are quoted at least seven times in the New Testament, and it's alluded to even more often. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has been the son of God for all time, just as the first person of the Trinity has been his father for all time. Now, of course, we know that he's always existed, but it's important to note that he did not just become the son at his incarnation. Rather, he has always been the son of the Father, equal in essence as God, along with the Holy Spirit. This doctrine is called eternal sonship. If you read the note before day one on your lesson this past week, you saw there was a link there to an article called Reexamining the Eternal Sonship of Christ. It was originally written more than 20 years ago, and it's really helpful to read how our pastor studied what Scripture says and came to revise his own position on this doctrine. These changes are reflected in the revised edition of the MacArthur Commentary on Hebrews. It is not a major theological shift, but I did want to mention it since you might be confused if you have the older commentary edition or you hear the Sonship of Christ mentioned by Pastor John in those early messages from the 1970s. These truths about the Trinity— Our one God in three persons are challenging to understand and impossible to fully comprehend as finite humans, but we can study what God's word does reveal and worship God for who he is and for the fact that he is above and beyond our limited comprehension. Likewise, don't stumble in this verse over the words today or begotten in our quote from Psalm 2. There's been a lot of theological debate over these terms. It's important to keep in mind what the author of Hebrews is proving in chapter 1. It's about the deity of Jesus, the Son of God. And so these proofs he's providing through the Old Testament quotations are not related to his humanity. Rather, they are all related to his deity, showing that he is God and must be worshipped as God. 
So the phrase, today I have begotten you, does not refer to Jesus' human conception. There are some big concepts here, and so I want to quote two men whose sermons and writings have greatly helped me as I've sought to understand what God is teaching us in this verse. They are our pastor, John MacArthur, and my father-in-law, Phil Johnson. In regards to the word today, as it's used here in Hebrews and in Psalm 2, Phil Johnson explained in a really excellent message, it was titled, The Eternal Sonship of Christ. He said, this speaks of an eternal reality described in finite language. The expression, this day, speaks of the eternal now of our timeless God. It applies to every day in the realm of time. So Jesus did not become the Son of God at a point in time. He has eternally been the Son of God and God the Son. Now concerning the word begotten, it's easy to eliminate some of the possible meanings. For example, it cannot mean that the second person of the Trinity had a beginning. That would be heresy, and it would violate the clear teaching of Scripture in other places. Our God has always existed as one God in three persons. It does not refer to the conception of Jesus as a human. It also does not show subordination. In other words, it doesn't mean that the Son is somehow lower ranked than the Father. Rather, begotten shows that Jesus is of the same nature and essence as the Father. It shows his equality and oneness with the Father, his deity. Here, let me quote the updated version of the MacArthur Commentary on Hebrews. John MacArthur said, Bear in mind that to any first century Jewish reader, the title son would be a declaration of equality with the Father. Indeed, Jesus was famously accused of blasphemy because he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. That's from John 5.18. In that culture, a dignitary's adult son was deemed equal in stature and privilege with his father. The same deference demanded by a king was afforded to his adult son. The son was, after all, the very same essence as his father, heir to all the father's rights and privileges, and therefore equal in every significant regard. So when Jesus was called the Son of God, it was understood categorically by all as a title of deity, making him equal with God and more significantly, of the same essence as the Father. That is precisely why the Jewish leaders regarded the title Son of God as high blasphemy. Now finally, to quote Phil Johnson one more time, to say Jesus was the only begotten Son of God was to say that he is absolutely equal with God in his divine nature and authority. Now while I hope that helps to clarify the meaning of Hebrews 1.5 a little bit, if you still struggle to understand this, that's okay. It's helpful to remember that you can be a Christian and not fully comprehend the eternal sonship debate. You can't, however, be a Christian and deny that Jesus is and always has been God. So just don't lose sight of the more important issue if you choose to dig into some of those deeper theological concepts. Well, next in Hebrews 1.5, the author quotes 2 Samuel 7.14. He says, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. 2 Samuel 7 is a key passage because there, God makes the promises to David that we refer to as the Davidic covenant. One of those promises was that a descendant of David would sit on the throne forever, and Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. In fact, nearly all of the Old Testament quotations that our author uses in this chapter are linked in one way or another to something of the promises of the Davidic covenant. Well, now let's go on to verse 6, and we'll see the second reason that we should worship God's exalted Son. Worship him because he is worthy of worship by angels. 
Worship him because he is worthy of worship by angels. You can look down at Hebrews 1.6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. Here the Father is calling the angels to worship the Son. Since it is sinful to worship anyone but God, this demonstrates conclusively again that Jesus, the Son, is God. The author of Hebrews always quotes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was commonly used in that day. And just like with our English translations, the wording might sometimes be slightly different. So when you compare a quote to the original in the Old Testament, you might notice a few differences, but generally the meaning is the same. We should also note the meaning of the word firstborn in this passage. Remember again, this chapter is focused on displaying Christ's deity, not as humanity. The term firstborn can relate to an actual firstborn child. In ancient times, that firstborn son would receive the special rights and privileges, including a double portion of inheritance from his father. Um, But that term firstborn was actually applied to whatever person received the right of inheritance. You might remember Jacob got it from his older twin, Esau. So Jacob had the firstborn privileges, even though Esau was born first. So the term firstborn has to do with privilege and preeminence, not physical birth. In Colossians 1.15, it describes Jesus as being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We know that Jesus is eternal, not created. And the very next verse goes on to say that he created all things. So again, the term firstborn is not speaking of physical birth, but of preeminence and privilege and the right of inheritance. The point of this passage is that the one being worshipped is always superior to the ones that are worshipping him. The Jewish listeners knew that the only one higher than the angels is God. So since God the Father tells all of God's angels to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, the author again demonstrates that Jesus' preeminence over the angels to all of those Jewish believers that were hearing this, as well as to all of us today. Well, we've seen that we should worship Jesus because he's the Son of God in verse 5, and because he's worthy of worship by angels in verse 6. Next, in verses 7 through 9, we're going to see that we must worship him because he is God, who righteously reigns forever. The third reason we must worship the exalted Son is because he is God, who righteously reigns forever. Look with me at verses 7 through 9 and see the contrast the author sets up with these two quotations. First, in verse 7, And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers flaming fire. The angels belong to him. They are his angels, and they are his messengers and ministers who do God's will. This is quoted from Psalm 104, verse 4, which extols the glory of God in creating and sustaining everything. And of course, he also created the angels. In contrast to the angels, you can see what the Father says in verses 8 and 9 about the Son. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Did you catch that? Here in verse 8, the Father calls the Son God. We must worship the Lord Jesus Christ because he is God. And you can see in these verses how he righteously reigns forever. 
Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Well, who sits on a throne? A king, of course. And what king could possibly reign forever? Only the eternal God, only Jesus, the promised fulfillment of that prophecy that we read earlier, the descendant of David who will reign and rule forever over his kingdom. The kingdoms of all earthly rulers rise and fall. Even the most long-lasting kingdoms of human history are only temporary. But the kingdom of Jesus Christ will never fall. It will never fail. And he can never be defeated or conquered. And do you see the sort of king that he is? He's upright. He loves righteousness and hates lawlessness. As the Puritan John Owen said, all his laws proceed from a constant love of righteousness and hatred of iniquity. That's a far cry from many of the laws of our land, isn't it? Even though we're blessed with more freedom than many others around the world, we also see corruption and laws that are unjust and policies that allow lawlessness to go unchecked. Won't it be wonderful to live under the kind of reign that Jesus brings? And this is not just wishful thinking. All believers will experience that one day, and we'll even get to reign with him. Scripture doesn't just inform us about these things. It helps us to long for heaven and for Christ's kingdom. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the New Testament closes with these words near the end of Revelation 22. Verse 20, he who bears witness to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. While we're on this earth, we should ask ourselves if we are emulating our king. Like Jesus, do we love righteousness and hate wickedness? Do we take no joy in sin, but delight to pursue righteousness ourselves and to see others pursue it? When we're convicted of any area where we fall short or do not love what Christ loves, we should repent and ask for his help to become more like our Savior. Verse 9 also talks about the Father anointing the Son with the oil of gladness. You probably know Jesus' role and title is the anointed one. That's the meaning of Messiah or Mashiach in the Hebrew language and Christ in Greek. Jesus was the fulfillment of all three anointed roles in the Old Testament, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. There were many prophets, many priests, and many kings, but Jesus is the only individual who fulfilled all three. There's a fourth reason why we should worship the exalted son. Worship him because he is eternal and unchanging. Verses 10 through 12. Worship him because he is eternal and unchanging. Look down with me at Hebrews um, chapter 1, verse 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all wear out like a garment, And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. In this section, we have a poetic description of both the creation and the destruction of the world, and the sovereign Lord's involvement in both. These verses are quoted from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. It starts out as an individual lament from a man who's suffering, but then it turns to recount God's sovereignty. And this must have been an encouraging reminder to those suffering Hebrew Christians. When they were tempted to turn back to Judaism, they needed to be faithful and instead look to their eternal sovereign Lord in faith and trust. In this chapter, Jesus has already been called Son and God. And now in verse 10, we see that Jesus is called Lord. 
we also see that he is eternal because before the beginning, he already existed. In Hebrews 1-2, we saw that the world was created through him, and these verses pick up that theme again. He founded the earth, and the heavens are the works of his hands. All of creation had a beginning, the angels, the heavens, and the earth, but not Jesus. He has always been, and he always will be. He's the eternal creator, above his creation, and worthy of worship. We cannot even fathom eternity. Our minds can't stretch to comprehend that far back and that far forward, but the Lord has lived it and will continue to forever. Now, even though we know better, to humans, the earth might feel like it could last forever. After all, it's been around for thousands of years, but it had a beginning and it has an end in sight. Verse 11 says that the earth and the heavens will perish. Second Peter 3 talks a lot about this. In that chapter, there's foolish mockers saying, oh, the Lord's not really coming back. Look, everything keeps going just like it has since creation. And Peter tells them they're foolish because they've forgotten the flood that God already wiped out the earth once by water. He promised he wouldn't destroy it again by water, but he's going to destroy it by fire. And Second Peter 3, 7 says, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The Lord is not being slow to fulfill his promise. This chapter tells us he's being patient to allow people time to come to him in repentance and faith. But that patience will eventually end. And on a fixed date that only the Lord knows, 2 Peter 3.10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. For those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ's death on the cross in their place, the response to this knowledge of coming destruction and judgment ought to be turning to him for salvation. The only safe refuge from the just and righteous wrath of God against our sin is in God himself. And for those who are already saved, Peter exclaims in verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So the author of Hebrews shows that Jesus is superior to the angels and worthy of our worship because he's eternal. And we also see in these verses that he is unchanging. Verse 11, they perish, you remain. They, the heavens and the earth, will wear out like a garment, just like the clothes you've had for years that are fading and getting holes in them. From God's eternal perspective, the earth's timeline is short, like our worn out clothes. Verse 12, like a mantle or a cloak, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. There's similar language in other places in Scripture. In Isaiah 34, it says, The host of heaven will rot away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. And in Revelation 6, during the seal judgments of the tribulation, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. Now, sadly, at that time, the response of most people on the earth is fear, but not repentance. They seek refuge from God, but not refuge in God. And so they will not escape. Jesus will bring the created world that he made to an end, and he will make a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. While the universe will be completely changed, Hebrews 1.12 says, But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Towards the end of this book in Hebrews 13.8, we read, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I wrote a note in my Bible by that verse many years ago, and it says, Consider how we rely on all the promises of Scripture, because Jesus never changes. 
The theological word that we use for unchanging is immutable. God is immutable. He's eternally the same in all of his perfections. This is true of all three persons of the Trinity. All are perpetually the same in love, holiness, faithfulness, wrath against sin, goodness, and so many other attributes. This is a precious truth. The character of God does not change from the Old Testament to the New Testament or to modern times. His attributes were the same, are the same now as they were in all eternity past and as they will be for all eternity future. This is why we can trust his word and anchor our lives on his promises. Now we come to the fifth and last reason in this chapter that we should worship the exalted son. Worship him because he has all authority. Verses 13 and 14. Worship him because he has all authority. So look with me at the last two verses of chapter 1. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? The phrase at the beginning of verse 13 is almost the same that starts verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, In both cases, the author expects a negative answer. God has never said any of these things to any angel. And this too shows that the son is superior and worthy of worship as God, far above the level of even the most glorious angel. Here in verse 13, what does the father say to his only begotten son? Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. This comes from the first verse of Psalm 110, written by King David. It's one of the most frequently quoted chapters um, from the Old Testament that's quoted in the New. It's King David speaking of his Lord, the greater king and the Messiah. Well, the right hand is the place of honor, the place of ultimate power and authority. At the conclusion of Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, he referenced this. He said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That phrase, enemies as a footstool, does not picture someone just kicking back with their feet propped up like it's an ottoman. Instead, this is a picture of total domination, a conqueror with his foot on the neck of his enemies, showing that they are permanently vanquished. So Hebrews 1.13 shows the authority that Jesus Christ has, seated at the Father's right hand and ruling over all. The next verse shows us what the angels are doing. They are sent out to serve God by serving believers. And yet, while their service to Christians at God's command is wonderful and a noble task, they are clearly inferior to Jesus, who is himself God, seated at the place of power and authority and over all things. And while angels minister to the heirs of salvation, it is God in Christ who accomplishes our salvation and gets all the glory. One way the angels have served both God and believers was by bringing God's word to men in the past before the Bible was complete. It was a high honor, but far greater honor is due to Jesus. Jesus did not just bring God's word, he was God's word. As we studied last year in John 1, verses 1 and 14, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus himself said in John 5, 39, that the scriptures, at the time only the Old Testament, 
bear witness about him. And we've seen the writer of Hebrews demonstrate this as well, masterfully proving from the Old Testament that Jesus is the exalted superior son, eternally better than the angels and all else, and worthy of worship because he is God. For the readers of Hebrews and for us today, Jesus must be worshipped because he is the Son of God, worshipped by even the angels, God's highest creation, because he himself is God who righteously reigns forever, and because he is eternal and unchanging and has all authority. By the time they reached the end of this section, those Jewish readers ought to have had no doubt in their minds that Jesus was far superior to the angels. They must not even consider trying to demote him in an attempt to lighten the persecution they were experiencing. The stakes were far too high, not just for this life, but for eternity. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is going to say next, in the first of multiple warning passages that are interspersed throughout this book. So we come now to chapter 2 and the second main point of your outline, and maybe even a new vocabulary word for some of us. Do you know the word spurious already? The dictionary definition of spurious is not genuine, authentic, or true, not from the claimed, pretended, or proper source, counterfeit. So with that in mind, our second main point is warn the endangered, spurious saint who is drifting toward destruction. Now, this message is primarily to unbelievers, but believers should keep this in mind as well. Let's read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. For this reason, in other words, based on everything that the author of Hebrews has just written about Christ, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, that would be the Mosaic law that was given, and every trespass and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That salvation first spoken by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, by both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So again, our point here is warn the endangered spurious saint. And I realize the word spurious is not one that most of us use in daily language. But now you've heard the definition. It's something spurious is not genuine or authentic. It's counterfeit. So then what's a spurious saint? This is a woman or a person who has heard the gospel and may intellectually agree that it's true, perhaps even attends a local church, but inside the spurious saint has not come all the way to Christ in repentance and faith. Spurious saints are pseudo-Christians. They're really only Christian adjacent, and they're not truly saved despite external appearances. We know that sometimes appearances can be deceiving. I mean, you could spoon some mayonnaise into a bowl, and you can call it vanilla pudding and serve it with a spoon. If you really wanted to put some effort into it, you could put it into one of those little pudding cups and seal the top and make a really official-looking label that says Jello Vanilla Pudding Cup. Okay? But no matter what it looks like externally, as soon as someone takes a bite, they're going to know it was only masquerading as pudding. You can't change what something truly is by only altering the outside. Just like the group of believers that the author of Hebrews wrote to, we have women, women that are sitting among us today or in church on Sundays that appear externally to be saved. They attend church. They may serve. They talk and act the part of a believer on the outside. But they have never repented of their sins and truly trusted in Christ, and they do not love the Lord. 
That is the mark of a true believer, a love for the Lord. My friends, that is an incredibly dangerous position to be in. And as our point says, that person is drifting toward destruction. And we have two brief subpoints in this section, a command to obey in verse 1 and a fact to consider in verses 2 to 4. The first is a command to obey. Pay attention to the message so you don't drift away. That's from verse 1. This is the first command in the book of Hebrews. There weren't any in chapter 1, but this command is based on everything we just heard. That's why it says, for this reason, therefore, based on who Jesus Christ is and the message you have heard about him, if you ignore this truth, you are in severe peril. Two terms in this verse can sometimes be used as nautical terms. One is the word for pay attention. That's what every sailor needs to do. The other is the word translated drift away. It's what happens to a ship if it's neglected and allowed to move aimlessly along. In John MacArthur's sermon on this passage, he paraphrased verse 1 in this way. Therefore, must we the more eagerly anchor our lives to the things which we have been taught, lest the ship of life drift past the harbor of salvation and be lost forever. That's exactly the picture of a ship sliding past the harbor while the sailor isn't paying attention, and then it's lost. So pay attention to what God has spoken to us in his superior son, or you run the risk of drifting and missing the harbor of salvation. You can't benefit from someone speaking if you don't hear them. You need ears to hear. You need to pay much closer attention. It's not just anyone speaking. God has spoken to us in his son. His perfect word, the final word, the word incarnate. We know that no person who is truly saved can ever lose their salvation, but we're all wise to obey what 2 Corinthians 13:5 says. Test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? 2 Peter 1 has similar counsel. 2 Peter 1, I love that chapter. It talks to the believers about the things that they should be pursuing. And it tells them that if they pursue those things, they're not going to be barren or unfruitful. And then in 2 Peter 1.10, Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. For in doing these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. We know that believers do not endure to the end because of any great strength on our own. Once someone is truly saved, they are eternally secure, not because of their own faith, but because God will help them to persevere to the end. Well, the second subpoint under warn the endangered spurious saint is a fact to consider. The fact is you can't escape judgment if you drift from salvation. Verses two to four. Okay. It compares the word spoken through angels, the Mosaic law, and how every trespass against that law had a just punishment. And again, that argument from the lesser to the greater. If there was already a just punishment for neglecting the Mosaic law, how much greater is the punishment for those that neglect the great salvation that was given to us through the Son, spoken by the Lord, not just by angels? The author's warning here disincentivizes drifting away. See, the prospective incentive for the Hebrew believers is to escape the persecution falling on the Jews that have turned to Christ. But the author shows them that there is a far greater harm that awaits them, which they will not escape if they desert the Messiah. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The answer is, we will not. 
There was a just penalty for all that broke God's law in the Mosaic Covenant. Every trespass and disobedience received a just penalty. There is a far worse penalty, an eternal one in hell, for those who do not come all the way to Christ for salvation. The gospel is not just an invitation. It's also a command. And neglecting to obey this command has eternal ramifications. So if this is you, if you have not come all the way to Christ, then may this be the day that you repent and truly believe. May you entrust yourself and your eternity to Christ today and begin to be made more and more like your Savior as we continue through our study this year in Hebrews. May God transform you and transform me as we study his word together this year. We've already said that what happens if we don't pay close attention to what we've learned? We drift away. It's not an act of rejection. It's just this passive movement where a person is carried away because they don't resist that natural current. So we all must make sure that we resist, that we don't drift away, that we pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Remember, God doesn't save us because we love him. We're his enemies until he saves us. But it's not enough to just affirm the facts of the gospel. When he saves us, he gives us a love for him. So check your life. See if you have come to know the God who loves you, and if that's evident in your life by a love for him. The love of God is also seen in that we keep his commandments, like 1 John 5 says, and his commandments are not burdensome. This warning to pay much closer to attention to what we've heard and not drift away is such a fitting reminder at the beginning of our study this year. We can bookishly study and store up knowledge. We can intellectually affirm what scripture teaches, like some of the original hearers of this book, But if it never changes us, if we never repent of our sin, if we never come to love this Jesus who is better than anyone and anything else, then we would be those who would neglect such a great salvation and be on the path to eternal destruction. But that salvation is generously and freely offered to every woman here. Hebrews 3 warns, See to it, brothers or sisters, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Drifting is the opposite of pursuing. So pursue Christ. Pursue the worship of the eternal superior Son. Glorify God in your life and trust him with the outcome. Let's pray before you go to your groups. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the precious truths in your word. We thank you for your revealing yourself to us because we would never come to understand who you are if you had not condescended to show yourself to us. We praise you for the eternal superior son and ask that you would help us to worship you with our entire lives. We pray for any woman here who does not yet know you, that you would bring her to yourself. And we also ask that you would bless the discussion groups, that you would keep us faithful and close to your word. Help us to rightly divide the word of truth and to glorify you by the discussions we have today and to go out to live transformed lives, becoming more and more like our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.